This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. We're going to do one of my favorite kinds of episodes. I get to talk to a fellow person in recovery. Her name is Mary, and she comes from Quincy, California, and she was so kind enough to visit our website and uh, help us out a little bit by agreeing to appear on the podcast. So um, I can't get enough of the personal stories of people who are navigating recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever program uh, and trying to do that through a, a secular lens. Um, Mary, uh, welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. It's so good to have you here. Thanks, John. I'm glad to be here. So what I typically do with this podcast is um, allow the guests to begin sharing their story, and then I will interrupt you and heckle you along the way and pepper you with some questions, and I might make some comments or whatever. And before you know it, we're just going to have a conversation. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds great. Well, let's do it. Um, why don't you go ahead and uh, f- uh, share your story about, you know, how you got started with your addiction and what happened that um, brought you to recovery. Okay. Uh, let's see. When I was about nine or so, my father joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, as a result, I ended up going to Alatane meetings and um, most of the kids in the room were teenagers, so I was a lot younger. Um, and my dad played music in the band, Red and the Slugs, and they had dances there. So I got to go to meetings um, pretty much until I was a teenager. He stayed sober for 12 years, uh, 19, December 7th, 1967, uh, till about a year after he retired. And so I... Uh, you know, we read the step books and um, everybody wanted the long paragraphs and, you know, we were just kids. Most of the kids in the, um, in the meeting were uh, drinking and using drugs, um, things, things that I were not doing. Uh, I wasn't doing that. And uh, let's see. uh, Then uh, I, you know, went on, did life, started, uh, drinking as I recall there was a party in high school a lot of people older kids drinking and drinking some straight vodka throwing up and drinking some more because that seemed to be the thing to do and then I remember uh, somewhere around my sophomore year um, going with a couple of boys and a girlfriend picking out a we decided we were going to have sex so we each got a bottle of Boone Farm, and uh, we drank our, we had an, the parents' empty house kind of thing, drank the bottle of Boone Farm, and uh, myself and uh, one of the guys decided that that was, you know, wasn't enough, weren't feeling it, so uh, made a screwdriver, and then spent the rest of the time throwing up in the back <laughs> backyard, you yeah, know, faced yeah. into the grass, throwing mm, up. Mm. But then somewhere along the line, and a lot of the kids that I hung out with, um, I used to go roller skating. I had gone to Catholic school, and um, uh, the roller rink kids smoked cigarettes and drank and did uh, whites um, and things like that. And they used to call me the preacher's daughter because I guess I was a goody-two-shoes sort of kid. 
um, in comparison. And, uh, um, but eventually I got, I got my feet wet when I was about 17. I, um, I remember, uh, mini white selling them and then eventually taking some and, uh, drinking and driving, uh, was a real common thing for me. Uh, I really made a habit of that. And, uh, did you ever get in trouble for uh, it? Did you ever get arrested or anything for it? Um, in those days, you know, you get pulled over by the cops and then they just send you on your way. You know, there was, there was many times, you know, a couple of young girls underage driving around laughing in my Volkswagen. Um, and they would just, you know, send us one time. I, I even forgot to put my like brake on and I rolled back and hit the cop car, <laughs> but they, I, they never, I never got in trouble. Um, I mean, I, I never got in trouble then. Um, so uh, I started getting into uh, doing like cannabinol and speed and things like that. And some, I started shooting up. And um, by the time I was uh, 18 and a half, I really needed a change. And I joined the army to quit doing drugs. And uh, so for a year, one month and 11 days that I was in the service, I drank like a fish. Oh no. <laughs> uh, I would, uh, you know, I had, uh, I was an air traffic controller and my permanent duty station was Germany. Um, I remember during school in Alabama, the bars were open till 4 a.m. And I would stay there till 4 a.m. And formation was at five and I'd be getting, I'd be still drunk getting dressed for formation. And, um, then I'd go back to my room and go to bed and hit sick call. The last sick call was 11 a.m. And, I was cutting corners constantly, and uh, I ended up at my permanent duty station. I was drinking a lot, and I ended up getting out of the Army um, when I was 19 and a half and uh, got an honorable discharge, and uh, I went to school, um, college. You know, they were sending, uh, it was 700 and some odd dollars a month for uh, school and unemployment. And uh, that was an investment in my eyes. So I mm-hmm. started selling drugs. Once oh, a month, no. I'd buy, <laughs> I'd buy some drugs and I would sell them. And uh, I had my first OD at that time, and uh, that was the first time I ran into the cops um, and had overdosed. And they came in and they found a bunch of paraphernalia, and uh, but I swore off forever. Um, so uh, they had like. I don't know if any of this is true. It's just the way I remember it. Like three weeks that they had to charge you with something. And um, at the end, nothing, I wasn't doing anything, but they came in to bust me and there was nothing in the house because I had sworn off forever. Um, And they charged me with the paraphernalia that they had found the night that they, I OD'd and the paramedics and all that bringing me back. And uh, so I was given the choice of, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, a year probation of formal probation or uh, 90 days of informal probation or something like that. And um, I was really committed to quitting. So I chose the formal probation because I wanted to be thrown in jail if I, oh, if I got good. loaded. Wow. So you were really serious. You, I guess it was, it must've, was it the overdose or was it just like a, was that just like the final straw of everything that was going on that got you to that point where you wanted to be serious about quitting? 
Um, I, that's just where I was at. I mean, at that time, um, uh, but what I found out later, um, after I signed all the papers for the formal probation, that the informal probation was after 90 days in jail. Oh, so they had told me that. So I just got lucky. Wow. <laughs> and, yes, uh, you did. So I, I, <laughs> I, I went to school. I was going to junior college, you know, cause my idea for staying uh, clean, sober was, um, to go to school. So I signed up for 21 units and, um, somebody came to the school and talked about Yellowstone Park, and I thought that was a great idea. So I um, wanted to go work in Yellowstone Park because I thought the mountains would fix me. And um, I got permission from my probation person to go do that. I had only been on probation maybe four months and um, was suffering, going to therapy, you know, was part of the deal. And um, I, I liked that, but um, so I went to Yellowstone Park and I uh, started, I was drinking a whole bunch, crashed my car, you know, end over end off a 50 foot cliff and um, let's see what else. A lot of drinking, a lot of drinking Damn. and drinking was driving. I was, know, hoping, I that, I was hoping it was the, the overdose that would have gotten you, but no, <laughs> so you go on no, no, and that's that common. Was, that was early on. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And, and so like, uh, uh, I, I crashed my car a lot and, um, I, I always wanted to be the driver because I was the most experienced drunk driver I knew, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> you know what? I did that too, actually. I used to like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, uh, let's see, I Yellowstone park from there. I hooked up with some guy and we went to his mom's house in LaPorte, Texas and worked at a Dairy Queen for a couple of weeks and. Oh, just story after story, you know, of the escapades um, growing up. Um, I ended up, I, I traveled a lot of places, lived in New Jersey and Texas and, you know, Wyoming and Montana and Northern California. I borrowed a friend's car and crashed that. And um, I, a lot of car wrecks, um, they were definitely equal with my age in a, in pretty short period of time. And, uh, uh, but no, that only that one situation with the law of probation, um, I ended up, uh, I, I had moved around so much. I had like, uh, I forget what the number is, but like, uh, 24 moves and, you know, I, like I, like I moved every two months in a period of two years and it, and I thought, you know, somebody looking at this would think that I was running away from something and I'm not. So I decided to stay in one place for a year. So I got a place in Huntington Beach and I um, got a job. Um, and uh, I was uh, shooting up in, uh, I was an assistant manager for a restaurant. And uh, starting as a graveyard waitress and worked myself up to unit aid, but serving as the assistant manager. And I was shooting up in my office. Then I got a boyfriend whose mom got me a job working in an old folks home, which was great. I was tap dancing. I was in the newspaper, but I was still, I was still shooting up in my office. Um, and uh, uh, what had happened was living at the place that I was at, what I realized when a year was up was all I had been doing was shooting up. You know, I, I would, I lived a place where, um, like when I crashed my car, I could walk to work, 
you know, I just, I had modified my life all around my incapacitated abuse of substances and alcohol. And um, then next thing you know, another year went by and I had same place, uh, staying in one place just made it really evident that I had a really big problem with substance. And I was ODing constantly. I had to get loaded with somebody so they could give me CPR. Yeah, it was pretty bad, and it was expensive, and I was getting pretty scared. And what were you um, using, Mary? We, we, cocaine was uh, one of the things that, you know, toward the end, but I had gone through different phases, you know, um, methadrine at one point, benzadrine at one point, you know, PCT, cannabinol was a drug of choice going into the Army. And the idea was that I would never do acid and I would never do PCP again be, for, because in 10 years I wanted to have a baby. So it was like when I was 18, it was like by the time I was 28, I could have a baby because I didn't want to. So as it turned out in that two years where I was in Huntington Beach, I um, I got pregnant. And um, well, is that how it happened? I, I met a guy. Everybody was ODing took me two days to get him uh, off by himself. And um, I said, if I get pregnant, I'm not going to have an abortion. And he said, well, um, that's fine. You know, um, let's just uh, get married now. And it was like, okay. So I knew this guy two days. We drove to Mexico to get married. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we ended up getting married, you know, after we knew each other one week. And, um, uh, the idea was to quit doing uh, drugs and to uh, be people who would be married, change our lives. That was our, our effort of changing our lives. And inside of three weeks, we were getting loaded again. And or he wanted to get loaded. And so I decided he wasn't serious. So we split up. One day later, I was with some guy that was drinking alcohol and smoking pot, which was clean in my mind. And... Um, Inside of two months, I got pregnant, and um, yeah, and I wanted to have a baby. I was 28. It had been 10 years since I'd done those substances, so 18 or 28. My thinking was 18, I would be a young mother. 28, I would be financially stable, which, mm -hmm. of course, was not the case. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I, I was going to have this baby, and so I did everything that I could not to get loaded or, you know, not to get loaded while I was pregnant. And uh, my best day was smoking pot, and I was smoking about a pack and a half of cigarettes a day at that time. Um, I did the best I could. I was not able to stay clean or sober. Um, I uh, had the baby, you know, at uh, like one week early. She was small. Um, and uh, when I was in the hospital, they give you drugs. And I was thinking this is the last time that I'm going to legally be able to do any drugs. And uh, I was there for like five days and um, having nightmares. And they said, oh, we'll take you off the drugs. It's like, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, the first uh, five and a half months of her life, <clears throat> I didn't want to talk to anybody because I knew anybody I would talk to would be somebody I would get high with. I took a job when she was five weeks old, watching somebody else's kid in uh, Lake Elsinore, which was like 45 minutes away from where I, I was at my mom's house, of course. I was always coming back to my mom's house. Um, 
So I got a job watching somebody else's kid live in sort of job. And I was there for like five and a half months and I had my baby and I was, I wouldn't talk to anybody. The first place I went after um, she was born, she was 10 days old, was uh, to the mental health uh, facility for a free uh, mental health appointment, trying to, and I was talking to this doctor, trying to um, stay clean. And the whole point was to stay clean. And I went there once a week. um, And uh, when I got the job in Elsinore, I would drive back once a week to go to this appointment. And it was only when I would drive back that I would get loaded because I was in my hometown and then I'd go back. So I was, it was left, but it, you know, it wasn't the desired thing. And I wanted, this is really sad, but I, I didn't want to be, I loved the baby so much that I, I didn't want to be a loaded mom. I wanted to give her up if I was loaded. So I was, trying to make myself very accountable to authorities and blah, blah, blah. So um, I was really, really trying. I ended up going to an AA meeting in Elsinore. There was this uh, club at Albert Hill. And um, there was like six old men that would go to this AA meeting. And um, I went to the meeting um, and they like was a Monday and then I came back on Tuesday, and um, it was the men's stag. It was the same five old guys, but they voted to let me stay. <laughs> and then the next day, I got paid, and I got like 65 bucks or 85 bucks or something. And um, I was worried because money spoke trouble. And so they took my money. They said they would hold it for me. So, so I gave them my money so that I wouldn't get in trouble. And then a couple days later, I took my money back and um, my boss lost his job. So I had to move back to um, Orange County where I, you know, was getting loaded. You know, I was only staying clean because I was in Elsinore away from everything. What, and, about uh, what, time, one thing I found, what year is this? What, what, what time frame are we? Look, is this like in the um, what, what, what decade are we in or when, what time? What year is it? 1986. OK. And, OK. And I. um. I, uh, when I, um, see that makes so much sense because I got sober in 88. I was drinking in high school in the seventies. And I remember when it didn't matter if you were had beer in your car or whatever, (laughs) it didn't matter. Right. And then it kind of changed in the eighties and things got a little bit more serious. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I just wanted to get kind of figure out that the time when, when this happened. So, um, so I lost, so I had been living in um, Elsinore and I, I, one thing I had one experience where I, my, somebody I met with, you know, of course a disaster. I didn't speak to anybody because I knew what I, you know, I would meet the person who had, was making mess in their bathtub, you know? So I, I went to the bar that was at the end of the street and all I did, I sat down at the end, at the bar and I was, scanning the the crowd that was there for who would have drugs. I hadn't even ordered a drink and I was already looking for trouble. So I, I was learning things about me and my disease, you know, and the extent and what my triggers were and where I could go and what I could do. And like I said, basically I couldn't talk to anybody or do anything because I would meet the people who would be getting in trouble, you know, like attracts like. So, um, so he lost his, my boss lost his job. I had to go back to Orange County and I figured that was the death of me. 
because um, that was where I had been getting loaded. You know, I'd been going once a week for my, my appointment and that was the only time I was getting loaded. So um, I went to the AA uh, guy said, maybe you should go over to the NA meeting at this other place in Elsinore. So I went there and I didn't find a meeting, but somebody told me where to look for a meeting or something. And, um, or maybe they sent me to AA over there and they said, oh, maybe you should go to NA. So when I moved, you know, like a day later, um, I, the, I went to the Alano Club, which is where my father had gotten sober. And um, it's funny because I remember I had been, you know, driving by there. That's the town I was getting loaded at. I remember I had pointed it out to somebody, you know, look, if you ever want to get sober, that's where you go. You know, as we're driving by, never even thinking it would apply to me because um, I don't know. I was a, a drug addict and I definitely had a drinking problem because I, I had, I was, you know, 28 and I had more than 28 car wrecks and they were all due to alcohol. Alcohol was just, and and out behind alcohol, I did all the things that were the most disgusting. Um, it was, you know, so anyway, um, I went to a meeting. I was back at my mom's house, went to a meeting. Um, anyway, I, they, they remembered, I, then I went back. Oh, I know what it was. I signed up for school again, 21 units of school. And uh, again, and cause that was my plan for staying sober. And um, at the school, they had an NA meeting on Tuesdays. And so 1.30, so I signed up for school. And then I went to the NA meeting. And um, they uh, there was like, you know, 10 or so people there. And uh, they said, I was going to a concert on Thursday. That was Tuesday. And I was going to the Moody Blues at the LA Forum on Thursday. And I was not going to drink because drinking made me get in trouble and I wasn't going to do any drugs, but I was going to smoke pot. And they said, no, no, don't, don't do that. And I said, pot doesn't make me want to do anything. I'm, you know, fine. I will not drink because I know that, you know, <laughs> makes it so that I'll do anything. Right. And they said, don't do it. Right. And I had heard the readings and the meetings. So I went to the concert with my friends and standing in line, there was like a little cart where they were selling gin and tonics. And I had never drink gin smelled bad to me. I'd never drank gin. I, gin was something I would never, ever drink. I had three gin and tonics standing in line. So I watched myself take drinks that I said I would not drink. I said that, I mean, I did not like gin. I drank stuff that I did not like. And I was looking for to do any drugs that I could, including those ones that I hadn't done for 10 years, you know, and it was like these things that had been supposedly firmly in place. I watched myself cross all these boundaries. I abandoned my friends. I, you know, it was just, it was just bad. I mean, hitchhiking home from Hollywood at midnight on a Friday night or Thursday, it was, you know, it was crazy actions that I took. And um, so I ended up, that was Thursday, I ended up back in a, in a meeting on Sunday, 5 p.m., Coast Mesa Lano Club, and I have been clean ever since. Great. Um, you know, your story, I can tell throughout your story that you really, there was a part of you that really wanted to stop, you know, but 
but um, just just couldn't. And and you were kind of there was one one part of your story where you kind of just gave into your addiction. And it was like this is just the way it is. But then you went to this through this long phase where it was like, man, I, if I need to do this and I need to get myself together, and I can really relate to that. Um, I think that my time frame was a little bit shorter, but but I went through this period of time where. I just thought I just needed to find a way to control control my drinking and I tried all kinds of various ways nothing worked and then I then I finally gave up. So you got to the point then so you were in NA and were you primarily going to NA meetings and what was your what was your impression of well, all that? I was I was suiting up for uh 12 and a half years and um that was kind of the thing that I thought was really the big problem, even though alcohol loosened me up to get me into every kind of trouble. Um, I, I went to NA and um, I quickly started going to an AA meeting every morning at 7 a.m. And I went to AA a lot because um, I didn't hear about drugs and drugs, hearing about drugs was a trigger for me. So yeah, so I got um, an AA sponsor. I went to AA women's meetings. I also went to NA, though. Um, I went to five to seven meetings a day. And I would leave a meeting in Costa Mesa and drive to Orange, which is, you know, 20, 30 minutes away to hit another meeting. And I would leave a meeting early to get to a meeting late and leave that meeting to get to another meeting. And I was, um, I was chasing after, um, you know, recovery the way I had chased after drugs and I um I eventually learned that you could it was good to go early and stay late and things like that but I I was going by the time I had uh 30 days I had been to 100 meetings yeah I think I was that and, way too uh, yep I was and doing I, the same thing. I, I had been going to a meeting on the beach in Newport um every Sunday at 9 30 and when it came time to take my uh, 30-day chip, uh, which was a first uh, in all forever, um, I uh, I didn't hadn't even noticed that they didn't even give out chips at that meeting, <laughs> you know. But I remember I you know I would pack up the baby and the playpen and I would take the that all down to the beach. I'd put it up. I I I'd sit in the meeting on a towel, listen. And I never went down to um, the water and the water was just like over the edge. There was, we were on the sand, 15th street. It's like, it's right there. Um, but I had, um, anyway, so I had shared about it in the meeting and um, some women were like, you know, we'll watch the baby. Go ahead, go, go look at the water. And it was like, no, it's okay. And they're like, no, no, you really need to go, go look at the water. So I went over the edge and I, I looked at the water and the last, time that I had remember looking at the water even though I had had a house I had an apartment at um, Balboa Pier for two years I had never gone and looked at the water you know because I was so in my thing but I went I looked at the water and the last time I had remembered was uh I in Huntington Beach I also lived uh half a block from the beach and I never went to the beach I had gone with a, a loaded syringe to the beach and I was going to shoot up at the beach at, you know, two o'clock in the morning. And I was just going to stay there until I quit doing, uh, I was going to stay there for days and, and, and kick and never, 
you know, and of course, you know, within an hour I was back at my place looking for, you know, getting more trouble. But I mean, I had the last time I remember being at the beach was when I was going to stay there and be stay clean, you know, and I was unable to do it. And here I went down to the water and I had 30 days, 30 days. It was like, it was so amazing. And it was like, how did this happen? And, you know, how can I make it happen again? It was like, we'll do the same thing. So I went to another 100 meetings in the next 30 days. And next thing you know, I got 60 days. Then I did it again for 90 days. And I had 300 meetings under my belt by the time I had 90 days. <laughs> wow. wow. But, you know, but it was working. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was, you know and I would. You know, I'd go to a meeting and uh, my mom would be watching the baby and I'd call her from the Alano Club half a mile away and I'd say, hey, they're going to coffee after the meeting. She'd say, go, go, you know, hey, there's a meeting after this meeting. Go, go. And she I, I felt like I was doing the same thing, you know, going from one bar to the party, you know, and and she was she was thinking, you know, I saw this work for my husband, you know, this might work, you know, and, uh, you know, next thing you know. I didn't even have really a desire um, for about a year and a half. Um, you know, I remember one time uh, sitting on the couch at my mom's house and getting anxious. It was like a full moon and stuff always happened at a full moon. And I realized, you know, I get this feeling. This is the feeling I get before I get loaded. I get in trouble. I crash a car. And so I had decided that I was just going to sit there on the couch until it went away, even though I had no idea that it would ever go away. And I, I sat there, it took about a half hour, but I was, the fact that I was committed to stay there until it went away, I think is what made it eventually go away. And once I sat through that first obsession, then, you know, I could rinse and repeat, you know, I knew I could, you know, I mean, I didn't really know I could do it, but at least I had a plan. I had done something that had worked and I could do that again. So I, I kept collected books, you know, the 12 and 12 and the big book. And, you know, I just kept, uh, 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 oh, shoot, I can't believe I can't think of it. The yellow book, sobriety. Oh, yeah. So, living sober. So living sober. Mm -hmm. Living sober. I, I went to all the meetings. Um, I knew all the old people. Um, I, uh, I tried to work the steps. I, I. I always, I had a sponsor all the time. I, I went through sponsors like water. Mm -hmm. If I didn't like something they said, I good got a new you. one. Good for you. I think that's a but good idea, actually. But at least I had one. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. I went through quite I a few sponsors, too, actually. Commitment. Yeah. I needed different people at different times. Yeah, I, I couldn't make the commitment with a person or um, didn't couldn't count on people. I was too insecure. But I, um, I, I, I got into the program. I learned it. I studied it. I worked really hard at it and I don't know if it did me any good, but I did stay sober doing it. Uh, I got commitments. I, I kept trying to get into a recovery house and uh, it took me five months to finally find a place that would take me and my baby. And by the time I did, um, they said, you know, we will let you in here, but um, you're a secretary of a meeting. You have an H and I panel. You know, you're a GSR. Um, wow. kind of think you're going to maybe make it. <laughs> <laughs> you were really something so, else. Yeah. I ended up uh, I ended up not going in, but I, I went to places that said they didn't think I was serious about it, which made me mad. Maybe that helped keep me sober. Um, 
Yeah, it was, it, I watched myself sort of objectively, you know, I would watch myself do the things to help myself stay sober. And I wondered who the heck is doing that, you know? Well, it sounds like um, you didn't really have any issues or problems with the program itself. Did you have any um, problems interpreting the steps? Uh, were you were you wanting to somehow put them in a secular way for yourself, or or, or was it just a natural well, thing? I got a story for that. If okay. you want to hear it, I do. I um I had went to a Catholic school um, first through fourth grade. Um, with nuns and everything I didn't it wasn't I was a daydreamer so I was not a good student I don't think I I don't remember anything negative about religion Um, I don't remember anything positive about religion (laughs) I don't remember any any concept of God that comfort or hindered okay Um, it's you know it just wasn't a thing and um, when I was uh getting loaded and ODing as a, on a regular basis. Jesus was kind of a cute guy in my mind, mm. long hair, beard, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was the kind of guy I'd go for. So um, I thought he was cool. And I also thought I would die at by 33 because yeah. of Jesus for some reason. Ah, wow. So I, um, when I got clean and sober, I didn't um, have any pro or negative concepts of a higher power. That was part of the step. So I just did what they said. They said, show up. And I had prayed on my knees growing up. So they said, get on your knees morning and night. So I did that. And what I would do is I would um, I would pray like I was sharing. I'd say, hey, God, this is Aaron. I'm an addict. And blah, 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 blah. And um, one time I had this really great experience. Uh, I was uh, I'm kind of dramatic. And I had taken a shower and I was I was naked saying my prayers before going to sleep and uh I was praying and I I was uh getting all emotional about something and I was I was saying to myself you know what am I you know um who am I trying to convince here you know me um God and you know and then uh it was I I was crying and these tears were falling and hitting my knees just pouring down I thought wow you are really you know telling the truth here and I realized it was my hair dripping on my knees. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my big drama thing. But I, um, uh, I went ahead and practiced uh, using a concept of a higher power as I was taught in the in the program, and it it worked more and more for me. The more I used it, the better it worked. And um, by the time I had six years, I was untouchable. Um, there was no man that could hurt me. There were no people who could hurt me. Whatever vacancy I had, I filled it with God. And um, I was um, dropping my daughter off at a school. I had, uh, she had gone to uh, secular kinds of schools, but um, I had had a really good education with reading and math. And I wanted her to have that. So I had, was taking her to a Lutheran school and um, I was dropping her off. She was sick, and I was also sick, and uh, she asked me, Mommy, do you love me or God more? And I knew the answer was God, because if you, you love God, because if anything happens to my daughter, I will be able to stay sober. I needed to love God more than anything, because I wanted to stay sober. That was what the program taught me. And so um, 
you know, I said, well, you know, it's sort of different. I need to love God so that I can love you because God, I, you know, get that. So she's like, okay, you know, so she gets out, she goes to school and I, I, I would drop her off at 630 in the morning and then every day. And then I would go to the 7 a.m. meeting. And I did that. I did not miss a single day in six years, not a single day. So I went to my meeting and I was pondering and I always, you know, shared. So I probably shared about it. Then I went to my job by eight o'clock and I was thinking about it. And by 10 o'clock, I was back over at the school and I got my kid out of school and, and had a little conversation with her. And I told her, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong. That was not, that's not right. And I realized, I told her that I love her more than God. And that's just the way it is. And I, um, what I had realized was that um, I was using the steps and the concept of God to not be living life. I had, I had used it addictively. I, I was using it to avoid life instead of live it. And I, you know, that the world was, the world was not a place that was not, did not have hurt. I was crippling myself. And um, so I had also read, um, Kenneth Davis wrote some books, don't mo- know much about history, don't know much about religion, don't, or the Bible, don't, although that was one of his latest ones. Don't know much about history, don't know much about geography. And it was all these fun facts of things that you didn't learn in school. Well, in the in the intro to one of his books, although I have never been able to find it since, it said something like, um, what if there was no God? Just consider it for a moment, you know, just consider what the world, you know, what the world would be like if there was no God. And um, so I had thought about that. And I had known a girl in the program that didn't like, she said there was no God. She was very angry at God. <laughs> really pissed and I always thought man I felt so sorry for her she only would just believe in God she'd be fine. <laughs> and um so I had had these experiences and um you know exposure to people she was a very unhappy person so she was not a very good example of somebody right. who didn't believe in God right. and then this 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 thing this guy said so that's what I did I um Number one, I decided that um, uh, God should that a little girl should be able to have one person in their corner. There should be one person in the world that they are the most important to. And I needed, for, and that had not been the case in my life. I had been abused because people didn't take care of me, and so it have, was a primary purpose in my life of sobriety to be totally there for my daughter. Just. Um, maybe not to do things for her, but to be for her not to feel alone and for people not to uh, be uh, not attending to her needs. So I um, I decided to uh, assume that there is no God. And as soon as there was evidence that there was God, then I would just go back to what I was thinking. And I expected this to take about a minute. Um, I, I was in uh, the 7 a.m. meeting. And I was, I shared about it and I expected in two minutes that somebody would say something, something would happen that would prove to me that there was a God, that there was no other explanation for. And I can tell you that 28 years later, I am still waiting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, every single thing that has happened, you know, and I have just feel like I've gotten clearer and clearer, um, 
about that. And um, I was at a loss. What was I going to do with regard to the program? Because staying sober was the most important thing, you know. And here, this was a, at first it was not that big of a part. But over the six years period of time, I had built it into a huge part of my program. It was really all that was left. Were you concerned about how other people might accept you if you were open about it? Or were you being open about it at that time? Well, I was, yes, I was open about it because another thing that I learned in the program was to be honest. Um, And so, yes, I did share about it in meetings and, um, and I was afraid of feeling apart from, you know, because people had been a big part of my sobriety. Um, I, there was all kinds of reasons that I was afraid of it. Um, it changed for one, but, um, I started going to OA and one of the reasons, uh, the main reason I went to OA was because they had an IP and information pamphlet called, what if I don't believe in God? And so I, I went to OA, um, kind of mostly because of that, because I felt even if the group was not a non-God thing, they had this IP um, that said that. And so um, I went through this transition. It took about six months um, where I, I, you know, for me, not going to meetings was going to five a week. But um, I, um, I went to fewer uh, AA and NA meetings and I went to more OA meetings. So I was probably hitting, you know, 12 meetings a week. And I was learning to live life without God or without the support of people who believed in God, which was everybody. Um, and I, I became, I went through phases of intolerance in meetings where, you know, there would be people that would talk about specific religions and, and use specific terms that would, it would make me furious. Um, I, I went through times of being very anti-religion. Um, look at, at the world and all the stuff that's happened. Look at these crazy people that are doing things in the name of religion. I went through all kinds. I joined, as you know, Atheist United. I went to Secular Organization for Sobriety. I I went to Rational Recovery. I went to Recovery Inc. I went to, I've got the small book. I, re, you know, I, I researched and I studied the same way I did all the other stuff. And and, you know, like in some of the meetings, like you don't even say you're an alcoholic. You They they don't want to reinforce that you're an alcoholic. In some of the meetings, they don't have sponsors. They don't have steps. And I thought, shoot, you know, if if that, if I would have gotten sober in that way, I don't know that I would have made it. You know, I was really grateful for the path I had come down. I did not curse the path I came down. Um, it worked for me. Um, maybe, you know, like those little, uh, worry baskets you put next to your bed and you put your worries in them while you're sleeping and then you take them back in the morning so you can sleep. It's like maybe the concept of God for me was, you know, like that. It was, it was a comforting thing to have a place to put everything, you know, till I learned the tools to be able to deal with it. Um, which, you know, really kind of didn't start for me until I had six years and stopped believing in a higher power. I used words like spiritual. I tried to halfway do it. I tried to do life force, but I can tell you bottom line now, I believe there's nothing. Um, I have friends that tell me they're, they're non-believers or atheists and they'll talk about the something or the energy. And it's like, I recognize that's their phase of development. It's a process I went through. 
I'm not there now. Yep. Yep. That's how I feel about it too. In fact, what I did, I, I finally decided, you know, that the whole, uh, the whole thing about the, the language of a higher power and all that, that's not even the way I talk. I realize that's not me. So I'm just going to be who I am. And so f- as far as I'm concerned, no, I don't have a higher power. Um, I'm just going to tell you the way it happened for me. And the way it happened for me is other people helped me. You know, I don't, they're not my higher power, but they're people who help me, you know, and, and that's the way I, that's the way I like to put it. Um, but I, I did get some pushback on that at one of my, my old home group, uh, because they insisted that I, that someday people would let me down. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. Well, and people do. You they know? do I mean, let you down. They do let you down. There's no reason to expect that they would be anything other than human. Yeah. But, they're not um, perfect. Yeah, nobody ever said, you know, that people were perfect. And, you know, but, but so what I've been using lately is healthier practice. You know, the, the program is a part of that, though. It's not everything. Like, uh, I became a vegan when I, when I had six years sober. Also, I quit. I, I quit Are you still vegan? Cigarettes. Huh? Are you still vegan? I was, oh yeah. Oh wow. Good for you. I Yeah, I um I quit smoking cigarettes and um I met a a vegetarian in a meeting that I was in. And so she was a newcomer. I was helping her as a newcomer and so I I went with her to her uh Earth Save meeting, which is about cutting down on 10% of the meat that you eat and um that will save the world, you know. And so I went to these meetings and listened to this vegetarian perspective as a newly non-smoking person and I was very vulnerable (laughs) and I tell you the stuff that I heard uh I was quickly convinced uh if I had you know I said if I had known this stuff I would have never eaten meat in the first place you know and so that you know that is part of my healthier practice you know there's all kinds of things that I've learned because I'm aware and because I'm sober that have uh, are more than just the program for me as far as how I live my life. Uh, and so, th- so a healthier practice today is uh, I'm, I'm really invested in that. And sobriety is definitely a hundred percent. I still go to more than seven meetings a week. Um, I, I, I used to make a big deal when I would take my um, chips, my sobriety chips, um, people would say, you know, you know, without God, you can't get sober, blah, blah, blah. And I, it used to be my job to go up and tell them, hey, I'm sober. And, you know, or, you know, that person you're talking, they'd have like maybe two years and I'd have 12. And I'd say, uh, hey, I've, you know, I've been not believing in God for longer than you've been sober. So you might want to rethink that. But I don't think that did any good. I don't think I... I didn't convince anybody or anything, but so it used to be my job when I would take a tip every year, I would tell them, and I don't believe in God. I would take, you know, here's my 22 year tip. And by the way, I don't believe in God. Um, but then I, um, this, the idea of phase of development, which is something that an old timer, um, said to me when I was new and continued to say throughout my clean time, and he's still clean. Um, is just recognizing phases of development, you know, that I'm in and that other people are in and having compassion for them and their, their phase of development and for my own. 
you know. That's, you know, uh, I've never put it in that way as phase of development, but that's exactly how I see it because I know that I've always evolved ever since I've been sober. So if I meet somebody that is in a place that I'm not, that's fine. That's where they are right now. I'll accept them for where they are. And who knows where they're going to be next year or three years later or four years later. You know, people do evolve. And it's like you say, phases of, how do you put it? Phases of change, phases of, um, phases of development, phases of development. Yep. I made a t-shirt that said, I'm into enjoying this phase of development. So guess what? The, that very first meeting that I went to, um, there's two people that were in that meeting that I still know that are still clean. I mean, they're in my life <laughs> with their 40 years of recovery, you know? You have a really compelling story. You know, um, it was it was really heartbreaking um, listening to everything that you went through and you're wanting to get clean so bad and tried all this, all this, everything to do that. And um, then when you got into recovery, that moment when you walked out and looked at the water, that was, um, you know, I've had a moment like that. Those are really kind of those are difficult moments to explain. Um, but it was, um, there's something about that, that really moved me when you were, when you were expressing how you felt about that. I think I remember there was a time I was, um, I don't know. I remember I was sober, maybe 90 days and I was driving down the road and it just seemed to me like, um, I was noticing like flowers and how green the grass was and how blue the sky was. It just seemed like the colors were more crisp. It just seemed like I was kind of waking up from uh, um, a bad dream of some sort, you know. Um, and I don't know. So I, 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 I'll just, I'll never forget that. I was just, I'll never forget that. I don't know why. I don't know. Can't explain what was going on with me, but I just think that, I think that, I think that my time drinking was a really dark time, and you know, and I wasn't recognizing the the beauty around me. Um, like you said, you never took the time to go look at the water. You know, yeah, well, and and I, I, I may do, you know, it's like you, you don't want to, for me, recognizing that I was in a really bad place, that's a horrible thing because if you can't get out of it, you're screwed. So it's, it, you know, for me, like when I got sober, it's like at about nine months after I was, when I was starting on my second four step, is about when I started um, recognizing how scary the place that I had come from was. And I, um, it was only when I had some solution that my mind would allow me to recognize that, you know, because recognizing it in it would have been horrible, you know? And, uh, I, so I, I wrote a song about that, that day at the beach. Um, yeah. And I, I started going to music meetings, um, early in recovery um, I used to try to sing at talent shows, but I could never remember the words to anything. And I didn't have any, uh, uh, for six years, I went to the same talent show every Tuesday night and I never knew the words to anything. And every week it was the same thing. I'd hear somebody play some music. I'd grab them. We'd go outside and do that thing. Do you know this? Do you know that? And I didn't know the words to anything. I never, ever learned the words. I got sober and the uh, manager of the Alano club said, well, you can have a talent show here. So we had a talent show there and I learned the words and I actually was able to start performing. 
<laughs> you know, and it's like, it was, you know, it's simple logic, but you know, it took getting sober to give me my dreams. You know, I ended up getting to be in a band and perform and, um, I've had so many dreams come true as a result of getting sober. You know, did I, you have, ever, uh, um, I have, did you ever record that song you wrote about that moment when you, when you went to sure, the water? Yeah. And I've written lots of other ones, um, with, with people in recovery, you know, we had a, a recording, uh, company called recovery rock. Um, and we put together, you know, we had music meetings where we uh, do it on steps and we'd, we'd wow, write songs that about, is so cool. you know, the steps. Yeah. And, and then, and I got into radio. I started, I have like four radio shows. One of them, I interview addicts in recovery. Um, oh my one gosh. Of them is, wow. Yeah. It's, called the Jane and John Doe show. Are you and, still doing uh, that? You doing that now? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I have to check that out. Yeah. Can, it's on a uh, mixcloud.com. And, uh, and, uh, it plays on the radio, KQNY Quincy 91.9. And, uh, it keeps me in recovery and I get to hear the most amazing stories. So, you know, I mean, and, and to witness, you know, um, I get to hear musicians. Um, I get to give them opportunities to play their new music on the radio. I, I do an old show with 78 records and. Wow. Um, I have got so, to check that out. There's, there is so much. To, I'm going to have to have you back on again sometime if you wouldn't mind <laughs> to talk about some of this other well, stuff. And, and so like I'm a writer too. So I, I'm a sports editor for the newspaper. I take, yeah, I take pictures. I, I write stories. Um, you know, it, it's like, the the dream job, you know, I, I, I ride a motorcycle. I started riding a motorcycle when I turned 50. Um, I, I took my 1977 Volkswagen van 8,000 miles around the United States with two big dogs, took a whole month of October. Um, I've just had so many dreams. I, I lived and worked in Iceland. Um, just amazing things because of being sober and all of it without a higher power yeah. to blame it on. Wow, yeah. I gotta check out your radio show. That is so cool. Um, but I was gonna ask you if it would, if you would mind, if I could like post like that song, maybe or a song that you might think is good with the podcast. Um, you know, in the in the show notes or something. If we could do something like that, it's up to you. Okay, just uh, think about I, it. I I sing. I'm not that good of a songwriter. Well. <laughs> You know, I just listened to we had I had a guest that I I, I interviewed um, a couple weeks ago that I'll be posting her episode next week, and she, her she wrote a song, and her son performed it, and it was so amazing uh, because in that song she talked about her struggle and the, all the promises that she was making to people to stop, and it was just so powerful to hear that. Um, and, and it was like, it was like the best speaker meeting you could ever ask for in a song. It was incredible. So I don't know, but yeah, I, I, so I, I find a lot of power in music like that. Um, and so I'm going to check that out. You want to hear part of one? Sure. Okay. I'll just sing you one verse in the chorus of a song. There was a time I believed there'd be no love for me. There was a time I believed I'd get no loving. I feel love today. Thanks to your help, I found my way in. I too will lend you a hand if you need one. 
Sometimes I get so down, I feel like it's the end. Like there's no way in hell I can get over that mountain. The sun has come up beyond the shadow of my doubt and I too will lend you a hand if you need one. I too will lend you a hand. Wow. Kind of cool, huh? Yes, very cool. And you got a wonderful voice, by the way. That was a really, thank you so much for doing that. Um, I'm so glad that I met you and I'm going to be learning more about you because I'm really fascinated with your, with what you're doing. Um, so I hope that we can stay in touch. Thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. You made my day. It's, I really enjoyed this conversation. You've had an amazing story and, um, it's going to, it's just been great. So thank you so much for that, for being here. Thanks, John. I appreciate your service too. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.